Good morning, family. How you doing? You doing okay? I have to say, of all of the series we've ever done, you've never cheered for a series title before. So there you go. We've finally found something you want to hear about. And uh, that is good. His name is Jesus. Remain standing for just a moment and we'll pray around the word. Uh, We'll also pray around my tablet, which has just crashed. Now I'm going to have to make this sermon up as I stand here. Wouldn't be the first time. Welcome, if you're visiting, Ben Teefy's my name. It's my joy to be the lead pastor of this church, and uh, we are thrilled that you joined us. If you're a regular, we are thrilled that you joined us as well. Special hello to you, Mandy, watching from La Dumanu, and uh, we're happy to have all you guys here. And also Margaret as well, who's watching online, but wants to give God praise because uh, she did have a fall this week, but it could have been way worse. And so we are grateful for you, Magsy, that you are okay, and uh, it's good. So when you see an ex, call her Magsy, okay? That's her. That's the name that makes her feel like a young woman again, so... Let's pray. Hey, our Father, we thank you because uh, we come in freedom. In many places of the world, people cannot do this, but we can. And uh, we cannot just come in political freedom or religious freedom, but we actually come in the freedom that is borne out by the sacrifice of Jesus that we have already heard about today. And we can come set free from our sin and we can come set free from our shame and our brokenness and our pain, set free from the need to perform for you, set set free from the need to earn your love and grace, which you freely give us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Before we move on today, Lord, we stop and we say we're grateful, grateful for the work of Jesus, that suffering that Paul spoke of. We're grateful that you did that. For us, every single one of us in this room, every single one of us on this podcast, every single one of us watching on the live stream, whether we know you or not, whether we feel it or not, whether we feel like we deserve it or not, your word says you stretched out your hands, Jesus, to sacrifice for us so that we who were dead in our transgressions and our sins and our separation from God, so that we could be brought near to God and seated with you, Jesus, in heavenly places. So we just stand and we're grateful. We say, would you come by your word and shape us, Lord? There's so many things going on in our world that are confusing. So many things in our own souls and minds confusing. Our workplaces and our families and our hobbies. There's all sorts of challenges we're faced with. And in this short moment today, Lord, would you help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face today and come and shape us by your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. amen and amen. Go ahead and take your seats. Good to see you. Well, you won't find much more weird stuff than when you open the book of Revelation, that's for sure. And you thought Tolkien was weird, and then you opened the book of Revelation and said, this is like Tolkien, but he was on drugs or something, you know. It is a strange book. It's a strange book because this is a book that was written 2,000 years ago, and it is written in a style very familiar to both the writer of the time, the Apostle John, the Apostle John who had started following Jesus when he was just 12 or 13 years of age, the youngest apostle. And then when he was old, when, when he was quite old towards the end of his life, he did a number of things. The first thing is he did is he wrote the Gospel of John, but he wrote it as an old man looking backwards in time, hoping, knowing that his death was imminent and he was imminent and he was near to passing away or, or being executed. And he thought, I don't want to die without the world knowing the Jesus that I walked with, the Jesus that I talked with. And he wrote the Gospel of John, a profound gospel, remarkably different from Matthew, Mark and Luke, the synoptic gospels, the gospels that come from the same perspective. And then there's the Apostle John, one of these kids doing his own thing. Remember that? And John has written this amazing gospel where he introduces Jesus to us as the word made flesh. 
And he tells us that in Jesus, the word made flesh, in the life of Jesus, in the teaching of Jesus, in the walking and talking and moving of Jesus, Jesus, the healer, Jesus, the prophet, Jesus, the lover of people, Jesus, the one who reached out to the broken, Jesus, the one who who emptied the temple and turned water into wine. And in all these things, he says, what we see in Jesus is we see the glory of God. We see the one full of grace and truth. And that is God now dwelling amongst us. And in his gospel, he sets up this conflict and he chronicles the argumentation of the religious leaders and and the high priests and those who benefited from the exuberant temple prices. When you had to go to the temple, you had to buy expensive lambs because the other lambs weren't good enough. And Jesus came in and he cleared it out and he turned over the temple and said, there won't be any barriers to people to my father. And when they complained about it, he said, actually, you can knock down this whole building because I'm going to raise one up in three days time. And John knew that he was saying, you can knock down the temple, but I'll be raised up in my resurrection in three days time and I will be the new temple. And it's the amazing thing about the gospel of John and all of his writings that follow on, like the book of Revelation, is that something massive has changed in the theological landscape of human history. And that is that God is now not located in places of worship, but God is located in the person of Jesus Christ who lived and died a perfect sinless life and then rose from the dead on the third day so that he could give resurrection life to everybody who says yes to the gospel message. And in Jesus, it used to be believed by the Jews that God would dwell in the tabernacle in the wilderness or in the temple of Solomon. And how did God dwell there? Because in that sacred space, in that holy place, heaven and earth were joined together and we would come in sacrifice and worship to see our lives joined back together. Our earthly, secular, broken lives joined back together again, reunited with heavenly space, which is what human hearts crave. They crave spirituality. Every culture does. Every human being worship something, whether it's something on Instagram or or whether it's an object or whether it's a car or or whether it's a human body shape or an idol or something. Every person has a worship impulse and we crave the reunification of our earthly lives with heavenly reality. And in fact, life is never full for you if you don't have that unification. And Jesus, all the way through the gospel of John, perpetuates the conflict with the temple because he is showing them, I am here replacing the temple. In me, God is seen. And John says, in him, the word made flesh, John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word for dwelt is the word sakana, which is the same word that we get from the Shekinah glory of God. Any Shekinahs in the room? It's a popular name in, uh, I think, maybe Zimbabwe and Nigerian, there's plenty of Nigerian Shekinahs that were in our church in Brisbane. That was really good because you could say, folks, the Shekinah is here today. (laughs) And uh, when John says that he dwelt among us, he's saying the Shekinah glory of God is now found nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. And he labours in his gospel that we would internalise that point, that we would understand that Jesus is where heaven and earth overlap. And if we want our earthly lives to experience heavenly reality, then we have to come and say yes to the gospel message and invite King Jesus in to be the Lord and Master of our lives as well. Not easy, because all the earliest followers of Jesus, in fact, every citizen of the first century world, lived in the Roman Empire. They lived in an empire where... The only way to be safe and secure in this empire was to confess, you know who my Lord is? Caesar. You know who I worship? 
Caesar. The, the emperor of Rome was worshipped as a god, and everywhere, the fastest growing religion of the day in Jesus' time was the religion of the imperial cult, the worship of Caesar, who was not just the ruler of Rome, who was now a god. And every town to have Roman peace had a, a temple or a shrine. And every year, every citizen had to appear before the town magistrates and take a pinch of incense and burn it in the fire and say, Caesar is Lord. And they would know, okay, you can be a good Roman. If you refuse to do it, you'd be arrested, you'd be killed, you'd be thrown into jail. And every Christian said, inviting conflict with this powerful empire that would kill you if you would not worship its emperor. They said, I'm sorry, I can't appear before the town magistrate and say Caesar is Lord because my life is predicated on a different message and a different idea. Here it is, Jesus is Lord. In the Greek language, you would appear before the magistrate and you would say, Kurios, Kaiser, Lord is Caesar. And the Christians would say, well, my life ticks around a different message. Kurios, Jesus, Lord is Jesus. And they invited conflict. Much like in many nations of the world, if you commit treason, they're going to try to stop you from committing treason. There's going to be punishments. There's going to be a backlash. And in the Roman Empire, treason wasn't, you know, collab collaborating with the enemy. Treason was not worshipping Caesar. And so pretty soon as this message spreads around, Christians begin to be imprisoned. Christians begin to be killed. They begin to be nailed to crosses, fed to lions, uh, put in the middle of, of stadiums and have wild bulls gore them. They, they would burn them alive. By the Emperor Nero's time, he would bring his friends and, and, uh, and political enemies for walks in his garden. And as he walked through his garden, there on the wall would be a Christian covered in tallow or, or tar. And they would light the Christian on fire. And Nero would say, oh, let the Christians shed some light on our garden as we walk through and enjoy. And they would walk through and investigate. It's pretty gruesome, isn't it? Who's feeling encouraged right now about what you've uh, learned in church so far this morning? And as they walked through the garden, they would do so to the light thrown by burning Christians. Now, that's why I stand here saying, man, I'm grateful we can freely worship Jesus today. Amen. You know, there are still nations and, and areas on the face of the earth where people worship Christ at risk of their own life. At risk of their own life. They can't worship freely because at any moment they might hear the pitter-patter of little steps at their door. Or big steps. I've preached in nations of the world where they've had to... One time they put me in a van, in a laundry van, and I had to lie on the floor, and then they covered me with folded sheets and towels, parked in the basement of a building, threw a sheet over me, walked me through an elevator, took me up to the top floor, the secret gathering with a few hundred pastors from all over a well-known Asian region where it's illegal to worship Jesus. It's illegal to even possess a copy of the scriptures. And they were hungry for God's word, and they were hanging on every word of the scriptures because they knew what a privilege it is to know Christ, especially when someone's telling you at the point of a gun that you can't do so. The Roman Empire was like that. It was intimidating. It was pervasive. It was in your face. Everywhere new buildings are getting built, every time you walked out, if you lived in the Roman Empire, which is most of the known world at the time, every time you walked down the street, you would see a new building going up or another temple to Caesar. And in the ancient world, statues and temples and buildings, they were about as important today as digital marketing. You know, everywhere you go, there's, a, there's an advertisement, isn't there? 
You check your emails, bam, ads are popping up. You, 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 open, you open a website, ads, advertising on the side. You're scrolling through various social media, every third or fourth thing is an advertisement. And then you make the mistake of telling them, I'm interested in unicorns, and bam, you, you know, unicorns are all through your advertisement. Isn't that true? All the men in the room, you know what I'm talking about, bro? You know? And the pervasiveness of digital media in our world is about akin to the pervasiveness of the emperor worship in the first century world. And everywhere you went, it was in your face. In the Roman Empire, most of the houses constructed in this time, other than those built by Israelites, think about that, of all the nations of the world, other than the Israelites, everybody else, even the very bricks they purchased to build their home, had the engraving of Caesar on the wall. Every home was built with an altar to Caesar. And then they'd come around inspecting your houses, making sure that you were worshipping the right God in that home. It was pervasive. It was in your face. And it was undeniable. Can you imagine being a Christian in that environment? Imagine being a Christian where you can't even get a brick that doesn't have the name of a competing God. As a reminder to you all the time, hey, Caesar's in charge and you better make sure you know whose turf you're on. And the Christian said, well, my creed is not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. But here's the thing. Everywhere they went, the visual evidence they were presented with argued against the gospel. Jesus is Lord, hey. Well, there's a temple of Caesar over there, and there's a temple of Caesar there, and there's a Roman soldier there waiting, and there's the magistrates there expecting you to sacrifice for Caesar, and there's a statue of Caesar there that you're supposed to bow to on the way past, and there's Roman armies conquering everywhere, and they're all saying, Caesar must be a god, because look how awesome, look how awesome, and look how glorious, and look how powerful Rome is. And Christians said, hang on, I, I have to learn something, I have to learn something, that the evidence I see in the world around me has no bearing on the reality of the lordship of Jesus. Christ. Now you and I, friends, we, we, we have to resonate with this because we don't live in a world where we're going to be arrested for worshipping Jesus. And by the way, let's not be the Christian conspiracy theorists that every time something happens, make it about how the whole world's against us. The gospel is progressing in this world. There are more Christians on the face of planet Earth today than there ever has been before. On the day of Pentecost, each disciple had to win 120 believers each um, you know, that would have been the, the, the compound interest table of, of the church. If every believer went a, won 120 individuals to Christ, the whole world would have said yes to the gospel. Do you know today that statistic is four and a half people? I don't know how you lead half a person to Christ, but hey, <laughs> I'd say the top half. There's the, the, the kingdom of God is expanding in planet Earth, like it was back in the first century. But the problem is you and I, like our forebears before us, could easily be fooled by looking around this world and having a look at the things we only see with our own eyes and being intimidated. You know, if you ever struggle with your faith, I think, man, what is happening in this world? This is going crazy. Who's ever thought that before? I, I had a small birthday this week and I turned the ripe old age of 44 years old. And so I feel like I'm now qualified as I move into middle age I'm now qualified to talk to my teenagers about the good old days. You know those days? Remember when you had to get up and approach the TV to change the, the channel? And remember when the phone was attached to the wall? And then the, phone was, the wall was attached to mum's head? And, no? Okay, just another story. The good old days. And we can look back to the good old days and have our, our, our heart thinking, oh, you know, everything used to be different. Society was more Christian. Society was more godly. Everything's getting worse. But Jesus told this parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And here's what he said. 
The tares are there, man. They're growing up. They're sprinkled stuff through the world, and it's growing. But this is what he said. But the wheat is also growing alongside it. The wheat. So listen, don't, let's not be those who focus only on the increase of the tares. The wheat is increasing. The harvest is increasing. You, you don't look excited about that. The harvest of the kingdom of God is increasing. We see people give their lives to Jesus every week in our church. Over the last few weeks, I've spoken to numerous people who've never been to church before, come into one of our services, have been presented with a gospel opportunity and said yes to Jesus. And some of those people have been transformed on the spot as they've encountered God. It's incredible. It's incredible. God is moving. And one of the things we need help with, and this is the point of you probably wondering where I'm going with this other than some rant about something. One of the things we need help with is we need help. How am I supposed to look at stuff? How am I supposed to look at stuff? Because the world is constantly marinating me in its marketing, in its worldview, in its advertising, its political messages, its moral messages, its ethical messages, its consumerist messages. And I'm constantly, and you are too, by the way, constantly suffering a barrage of thousands and thousands of targeted messages every day about the way you're supposed to see reality, about the way you're supposed to view reality, aren't you? And if we feel pressure, don't we? Now, some of us, they beat, we beat ourselves up like, oh, man, I should be better than this, I should be better than this. But you've just got to think, it's not about you being better, it's just about you learning to see reality the way you're supposed to see reality. That's all it is. Now, what happened in the first century world is that the Apostle John, he writes his gospel and then he writes his letters to the different churches. And then because of his testimony of Christ, like many Christian leaders, they were trying to stamp out the Christian movement. And here we are even in Alice Springs today, all these thousands of years later, saying, Jesus is Lord. Where's Caesar again? Have you seen him? He is in the grave. His statues are rubble in most places, but for a few museums. And Jesus' kingdom marches on, changing lives moving in people's lives. But they couldn't stamp it out. And, and, and the more they tried to clamp down on the Christian movement, the more the Christian movement would spread. Because here's the thing. This is what's weird about Christians. Once you start killing them, they multiply. Christians are like, have you ever seen the film Gremlins? The old people in the room know what I'm talking about. Now, with a gremlin, you can't feed them after midnight. You can't get them wet. Otherwise, what happens? They multiply. Well, it's kind of the same. As soon as you start persecuting Christians, they multiply. There's almost no other group on the face of the earth that multiplies when you persecute it. Most other groups, you start persecuting them and they disband. It's exactly what the world was used to then. It's exactly what the world is used to today. But here's a thing that led a great um, scholar, William Carey, the father of modern missions, to say this, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. And everywhere, he stole it off a church father, by the way, but everyone says he said it. Um, he, he, he noticed everywhere you go, when Christian blood is spilt, a revival happens. A revival happens. So today, I've invited some people in to beat us all up so we'll do a better job. Is that okay? No? Okay. Just a couple. Start making a list of names you'd like to see beaten up. And John is going around preaching and teaching and standing up for Jesus. And, and, and churches are multiplying. And he was there. He, he, he saw Jesus arrested. He was the one that had his clothes ripped and he ran down the street naked. I don't think you're going to forget that incident, are you, John? He's the one in his own gospel that calls himself the one Jesus loved. Good on you, John. Peter didn't write a gospel. That's why we know all the bad stories about Peter. 
And John is arrested by the Romans and exiled to the island of Patmos. Why they did that is because they were going to kill him, but while they waited to go through the processes to killing him, they didn't want him to have access to everybody. There was a problem with the Roman army at this time, and here it is. The Apostle Paul got arrested three times, at least that we know of, and every time he was arrested, even the captors, even the soldiers that were supposed to be torturing him and questioning him and interrogating him, they'd do all that stuff, and then you know what's happened? They would give their life to Jesus. They would give their life to Jesus. And when he writes his prison epistles, he says, even the household of Caesar has started to get saved. So you can imagine you're the Roman emperor and you've got this whole system and you're in charge of squashing everything and putting out the fires. And you start hearing rumors of this crazy movement where they won't worship you. They worship this Galilean carpenter called Jesus. I won't pay any attention to it. He, he, he puts it out of his mind. And then suddenly that movement starts spreading. It goes from being a Jewish sect to a significant social force across the Roman Empire. They love their enemies. They turn the other cheek. They give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. They will die for their faith. In the first and second centuries, when Christians were led off to stadiums to be crucified, they began crucifying them. And then what was really annoying is the Christians would pray like Jesus died with his last words on his breath. Father, forgive them. They know not what they were doing. And the first century Christians followed their savior, Jesus, and prayed for those that were persecuting them. And the torturer said, we're making their death too easy. Persecution, I mean, crucifixion, a horrible, torturous death. They said, we're making it too easy because they kept on dying with smiles on their faces. They said, well, let's make it worse, so let's crucify them, then let's leave them there for a little while, then let's light them on fire. And they lit them on fire, and then when they heard them yelling out, they thought, good, they're crying out, and this was the phenomenon that you can read in Fox's Book of Martyrs and several other historical records, that these Christians, as they were burning on the cross, they were crying out, but they were not crying out in pain, they were singing songs to their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And when the Romans went to take their charred remains down, everything was baked and, and, and they were utterly dead, as you can see. But the one thing that could not be explained is how many people had died at crucifixion left with a smile on their face. Can you believe that? And this message spread around the Roman Empire because for some reason you can't stop the gospel. You can't stop the gospel. And it must be explained because everywhere you looked around planet Earth in the first century world, you would say, but surely the Roman Empire is more powerful than the church, right? And you would be wrong. And John is on the island of Patmos. They're trying to shut him up. They don't want him in a jail where he can lead the, the jailers or the prisoners to Christ. They don't want him where he can receive visitors. They don't want him where he can yell over the wall or yell through the grate in the window. They take him to an island and they exile him there. No contact with anybody. And we get a body of writing from John, who while he was exiled on the island of Patmos says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the Lord's day is the, by then the day of worship. The, the Christians devoted Sundays to the worship of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to say that bit again. They devoted Sundays to the worship of Jesus Christ. You know, we appreciate you being here, but uh, these guys are spilling their, their blood and we're checking our watches 10 minutes into the service. Oh, we've got more important things to do every now and then. And John is exiled and he said, I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he has an appearance of Jesus Christ who discloses himself to John. In a way, John is familiar with because once upon a time, John who walked with Jesus, Jesus walking, Jesus talking, Jesus healing, Jesus breathing. And then Jesus takes Peter and James and John up a mountain and it says he is transfigured before them and he turned into this fluorescent, 
glorious being, glowing white. And it says Elijah and Moses came down and they talked to him. And, and all of the disciples knew Jesus, the man. But on that mountaintop, they got a future glimpse of Jesus, the glorified ruler of the earth. Jesus, the king of the universe. You understand that when Jesus was walking and talking, he condescended in the words of Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself. He emptied himself and became found in the form of a man, meaning he put aside some of his divine privileges and said, I want to identify with the human race. So I'm going to come in a way that they can relate to. I'm going to come as a person who is approachable. But on that mountaintop, Jesus unveiled himself to Peter, James and John, so much so that they said, Jesus, let's never go anywhere else. Let's stay here the whole time. I'll even put up a tent for Elijah and Moses if you want to. And Jesus said, we have to go back. (laughs) And John had seen that. And it was one of the things he saw the way Jesus lived. He saw the way Jesus prophesied. He saw the transfiguration of Jesus. He passionately preached the gospel. He wouldn't shut his mouth at threat of his own life. He had watched how many lives were transformed, how many communities were transformed, the power of the gospel to change a human life. And he wouldn't shut up. And he said, you kill me, arrest me, beat me, send me off to an island in exile. Who thinks that sounds good? When you're in Alice Springs, an island in the middle of terrain, it doesn't sound bad, hey? Please exile me, Lord. And he's there praying and he receives a vision which Jesus says, write this to the churches, send it to them, send it to them. And what you have to understand is that in the grace and mercy of God, what Jesus has done in his disclosure, which we'll turn to the text in a minute, what Jesus has done is, is in his disclosure in the book of Revelation is he has helped unmask the very realities behind the universe itself. We see the natural world with our own eyes. And then Jesus says, you have to overlay something. You can't just look at the natural world with natural eyes because the reality is made up of two complements, heaven and earth. There is heavenly reality and there is earthly reality. And we are well acquainted with earthly reality, but most of us are strangers to heavenly reality, to spiritual reality. And in the book of Revelation, we received in this text a gift of heavenly reality that we are supposed to read and overlay over our experience, overlay over the natural world, overlay over the way we interpret events. Now, I will say this. Most of the writing, most of the preaching, most of the teaching at the popular level that you may be familiar with on the book of Revelation should just be thrown in the bin. Most of the websites devoted to Prophecy Watch and End Times and clipping out all the articles about what's happening in Israel and what's happening in Texas and what's happening in Washington, D.C. or with the Russians, most of it is bogus and most of it is bunkum. In my lifetime, several End Times experts, so-called, and several prophets have predicted the day Jesus was coming back and those days have come and gone. It is no secret If you're a reader of Scripture and a true student of Scripture, it is no secret, it's not going to be an easy time to work out what about what these predictions are all about. And there's a very good reason for that, because actually most of the book of Revelation is not about predicting the future, but about describing the now. It is about describing the current heavenly realities that exist and how earthly realities are influenced and interact with those heavenly realities. So I just have to say this. If you're thinking you're going to discover who the beast is in this, you're not going to. If you think that you're going to discover the exact date that Jesus is coming back, because we're going to do a little bit of reading from the book of Revelation, you will be disappointed. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do what Christians rarely do with the book of Revelation, which is a big shame. We're going to look at the text, and we're going to see what the text 
wants us to process. Is that okay? We're going to begin this week and we will uh, continue over the next couple of weeks. Revelation chapter 1, and we're just going to read the first maybe 18 verses together today and make a few comments on those. It says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Let's look at that opening phrase, the revelation from Jesus Christ. First of all, we would note that the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, which is where we get our word apocalypse from. Who's heard of the zombie apocalypse? Who's heard of the iPhone apocalypse? You haven't heard of that one? You've got to get your Android out for that one. Um, uh, the revelation is the Greek word apocalypsis, and apocalypsis means to be unveiled, to have something unveiled, like a bride that's unveiled, or, or, or the curtains thrown open at a theatrical production. But when this word apocalypsis is used, it's mainly used of divine revelation of reality. And it's like we see reality with our natural eyes, but when we read this material called apocalyptic literature, when we read this book of revelation, what God is doing is God is throwing back the curtains on reality and saying, ha, you think you've lived your whole life knowing how the universe ticks, but what me... Watch me show you how the universe really ticks. A revelation from Jesus Christ. An unveiling from Jesus Christ. This verse has been controversial uh, for thousands of years because it is written in a Greek case called, called the subjective, the subjective, and, and sorry, the genitive. And in the genitive case, the genitive case is, is a way of saying that something is from someone or something is about someone. And you have to make a choice when you interpret the Greek language and when you read a sentence, is it the revelation of Jesus Christ or is it the revelation from Jesus Christ? So if you compare all your different English translations, some of them will say a revelation from Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the giver of the revelation, that this proceeds from him. And some translations will say a revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning that Jesus is the subject of the revelation. This is a revelation about Jesus. And what most Bible scholars would sort of find unity on is actually, it's kind of like in the mysteries of God, one and the same thing. That what this book is about, this book is an unveiling of Jesus Christ. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That means that when we read this book, we're not trying to get the beast revealed. We're not trying to work out what's happening with end times. We're not trying to work out if the Russians are the one being ridden on. We're not trying to work out if the Catholic Church is involved or President Trump or something else. Oh, yeah, we laugh, but you should read the trash that's out there. In fact, many of us are reading the trash that's out there, and it's one of the things we should stop doing is supporting the populist Christian market that writes nothing but uh, mental health abdicating nonsense. A revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. In the very first line, we are told what to expect. We are being schooled. This is what's happening when I'm opening this book. I should have my eyes open, not for what's happening here, not for what's happening here. Don't bother clipping articles out of Time magazine or the New York Times. Have your eyes open. How does this reveal Jesus to me? That is the subject of the book of the Revelation. And it's important because where does it come from? Just John, some crazy prophet on an island? No, it comes from Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ's revelation of himself. This is the revelation of Jesus. Now, this is important because we, most of us, are only familiar with one type of Jesus. And that would be gentle Jesus, meek and mild, walking planet Earth as a humble saviour. But in the book of Revelation, we see not the earthly Jesus, but we see the resurrected, glorified, ascended Jesus ruling and reigning over the universe at God's right hand, on the throne in heaven, surrounded by angels being worshipped, the one managing the universe. 
And friends, you and I have to understand that every single one of us, and especially if we think we're an end times expert or are listening to those bozos, every single one of us has to understand that what a human disciple of Jesus needs in this day and age is not more communication about what the world's like, but more vision of how is Christ revealed in this current age and what I'm going through. And some of us, even with this book, are finding the wrong stuff. And that is why we'll find that we're afraid and that is why we'll find that we're discouraged and that is why we'll find that we're uh, confused. And that is why most Christians avoid the book of Revelation until ridiculous books like the Left Behind series are published. Which, by the way, if you turn it over and look on the bottom left-hand corner, you'll see a little phrase, fiction. There's a reason. If only most of the Bible teachers teaching you about end times would would admit that what they are talking to you about is fiction. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Most sensible writers talk about this, but you'll barely find their books on the bookshelves because they're Christian scholars and experts in apocalyptic literature. And what they write doesn't sell. The revelation from Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So when I open this book, I'm looking to see reality as it is. I wrote a textbook on the book of Revelation when I was in uh, Bible college lecturing. It was our textbook for a whole semester study on the book. And it was called Unmasking Reality, because that's what this book is about. This book is about that what Jesus does as he reveals his face to John, and then he says, will you send this to the churches, is that what he does is he takes the mask off reality so we know what's really going on. What's really going on? How many people know what's really going on is not always the same as what appears to be going on? Any married people in the room? Sometimes, someone I've been married to, I'm not mentioning names, (laughs) my first wife, just in case you don't know me, I've only been married one time. My first wife used to say, (laughs) you'd say, hey, go on, babe, and she's like, fine. That appears fine. That appears like there's no problem. That appears like everything's hunky-dory. How many men in the room know whenever your wife says, fine, you run. You run, you don't walk. You, You pack the dog, you pack the house, you pack the cat, you get out of there. Because what appears to be going on and what's really going on are not always the same thing, are they? So listen, what John sees as he communicates to us what happens, okay? A revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Let me just enjoy that for a moment because I'm doing it right now. The only book of the Bible that there's a beatitude in for, actually, all you have to do is read it aloud and you're blessed. And listen to this one. Where are we? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. I'm blessed because I read it. My work here is done. You can share the blessing I enjoy, not just by hearing, but by hearing and taking to heart. 
the words of the book. That means you can't just let it go in one ear and out the other. You've got to let it go in one ear and be metabolized into what happens in your heart. And then you're blessed. Then you're blessed. This is one of the curious things about the book of Revelation is that while the modern church with its just mental illness publishing community, um, while the modern church milks the book of Revelation to see why what's going on with the peace treaties in the, middle, in the Middle East and what's happening with America and what's happening with Russia. Notice like, you know, Zambia never features or, or, or Guam or something like that. It's very American-centric or Eurocentric, Western-centric. All the garbage that's been written about the book. But one thing that you'll never find unpacked is that if you want to be truly blessed, the source of this book is to convey a blessing to you. And if you want to receive the blessing of the book, you are supposed to hear and take to heart the words of the prophecies. Not hear and take to the internet the predictions of the future. Hear and take to heart the words of the prophecies. And what that means is that there is communication from Jesus here that we're supposed to listen and obey. Listen to what the Lord has said and obey the contents of the book. Now, if the book is only about the crackpot predictions of the future that you read so much about on the internet, tell me this, what is there to obey in that? Almost nothing. And that is why we know that that is not the substantial purpose behind Christ's revelation to John and why he asked him to write this book. It is not just a collection of things about the future to look out for. It is discipleship. It is discipleship for us, for us to learn, how am I supposed to unmask, view reality as it is, and then how am I supposed to find Jesus there and see Jesus as Jesus really is? And then how am I supposed to respond to that Christ? That's the message of the book of Revelation. We know that because John says, he made it known by sending his angel. And that Greek word, made known, is the Greek, Greek word for signified. Some translations say he signified it to his servant. And signified means to do something in symbolic language. To do something in symbolic language. And so, of course, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you would know there's plenty of symbolic stuff in there, isn't there? Plenty of things that are difficult to understand. And one of our problems is, is that we are utterly unfamiliar with this thing called apocalyptic literature. It comes from 2,000 years ago. So it's like if you, know, if, if you get someone from 2,000 years ago and you get them to read a comic book, they'll have no idea what's going on because they don't understand that genre, do they? But we have a blessing if we listen, if we really listen closely and we take to heart the prophecy of this book. There's a blessing that comes upon us. We should be expecting that it's in symbolic language because it's an apocalypse. It's something signified. It's in symbolic language. Blessed. We should expect to be blessed when we read this book. I'm blessed for reading it aloud. You're blessed if you listen and take to heart. Now listen to how John transitions in verse 4 and 5. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near to him who loves us have I skipped some there John to the seven churches in the province of Asia grace and peace to you from him who is and him who was and him who is to come in Greek, that's such a uh, curious term. It's very hard to interpret because it's not strictly grammatically correct because there's no way to say him who was, him who is, and who is to come without that breaking all the rules of language. And that's what we find the first thing about Jesus, that Jesus doesn't fit any of our pre-existing categories. There's not even adequate language to describe Jesus, not even when John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that pretty awesome? From him who was and is and is to come. 
And the seven spirits before the throne, if you don't know, that's a quotation from the book of Zechariah, God's spirit embodying seven different values. The seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. That Greek word firstborn is prototokos, meaning the ruler, the, the, the son in charge of the whole household. From the dead, the only resurrected one. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. Have a look at that phrase. The ruler, one, two, three, four. Wait, I'm losing count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. Ruler of the kings of the earth. In Greek, that's one word. Pantokrator. Pantokrator. The one who rules all other kings. And we have to learn that we've just got to start viewing reality a different way when Jesus appears to John and unveils reality and says, I don't care how you think the universe looks. Take a look at this. The one who really rules the kings of the earth, his name is Jesus. He's the one that rules. Don't be fooled by Rome. Don't let Caesar pull the wool over your eyes. Don't let earthly circumstances blind you. You must try to marry together earthly reality and heavenly reality. And because we don't know how to do that, we have to come and fall at the feet of King Jesus like John's about to. Listen to what he says. The revelation of Jesus. How do we find Jesus in this? How do we see Jesus in this? Jesus is the Pantocrator. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. When I worship Jesus, I'm in touch with the ultimate power behind the realities of the universe. I'm in touch with the one who's really in charge. I can stand with authority. I can stand with faith. I can stand in encouragement. And I can lift my hands and worship Jesus and say, Jesus, it doesn't matter what I see that's going on out there. You are the ruler of the kings of the earth. You are the one who is risen from the grave. You are the one who was. You are the one who is. You are the one who is to come. And I can stir my soul that you rule and you reign and your kingdom is without end. That's what's supposed to happen in my heart when I start having reality unmasked. I can't be afraid of anything. I can't be intimidated by anything when I really know the one I am redeemed by is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And while you waste time clipping out your newspaper articles and going on endtimeswatch.com, you're losing the valuable opportunity to have your soul renovated by the faith and the trust and the confidence of the King of Kings who wants to unveil himself before you and have you see him in ways you might not be familiar with. The ruler of the kings of the earth. What else do we learn about Jesus from John? He says, it's so funny, already as soon as John starts writing this revelation, he is caught up in a moment of worship. He is caught up in an act of worship. He says, to him, to him who loves us. Yeah, his raw power, his raw authority, the God of the universe, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, now I'm intimidated. Now I'm a bit scared. Now Now I'm quaking in my boots. And John says, no, the revelation of the Pantocrator, the revelation of the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See, the thing is, when Jesus is unveiled before us and we see him as he truly is, as the resurrected, ascended one who reigns over all the earth, the ruler of the kings of the earth, I am straight away moved in his presence to know that's the one that loves me. It's the one that loves you, friend. Everyone else who's ever said they love you, they may or may not, but their love will be tainted with human brokenness and we do it to each other, don't we? 
But there is a perfect love. And there is a perfect Saviour. And there is a perfect ruler. And Jesus, the one who rules over the substance of reality itself, He's the one who loved us. And what did He do? He sacrificed for us to free us by His blood from our sins. And you see what John does is as Jesus begins to be unveiled, he says, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. I can't worship Caesar. I can't worship myself. I can't even spend time in love with the things of this world. I've got to get lost in worship and say, Jesus, to you belong all the power and the glory. And all the way through the book of Revelation, you'll see heavenly throne room scenes. You see, throne room seems where John or an angel or somebody else is transported to heaven and there Jesus is sitting on the throne of heaven surrounded by angels and indescribable living creatures and thousands upon thousands of people all who throw their crowns at the feet of Jesus and say, holy, holy, holy. Because when Jesus is revealed, when Jesus is unmasked, not as gentle Jesus who walked the earth, but the one who now rules in authority and power, then we've got to ask God, Jesus, God, would you reveal Jesus to me that way? Because honestly, the true human calling is to respond to the greatness of Jesus by lifting our hands in worship. And if you're not a worshiper, it's because you're not a Jesus seer. Because if you're a Jesus seer, The response is holy, holy, holy. The response is to Him who loved us and freed us from our sins by His blood. To Him be the glory and the power. You see, we learn about Jesus when we see reality unmasked. But we learn about ourselves. He says He freed us from His blood. We can be redeemed. He says He has made us a kingdom of priests to serve His God and Father. His God, our God now. His Father, our Father now. My friend, when you're in the presence of the ruler of the kings of the earth, you're not a beggar. You're not a worm. You're not cosmic dust or cosmic pond scum. You are someone He greatly loves. Someone He greatly loves that He sacrificed to die for. And now in His resurrected, glorified, ruling and reigning state, He says, you are a kingdom of priests. Actually, the word is, He made us to be kings and He made us to be priests. You've got to think about this in the first century world when there's priests of Caesar everywhere and a king being worshipped. And then Jesus says, why would you worship a king when you are a king? And girls, you get to be a king as well. And by the way, that didn't happen much in the ancient world. Girls being called kings. And they certainly didn't get called priests. You'd forgive John if he said, to all the men in the room, you're kings, you're priests, all right. But even you girls, get a crown. You can call it a tiara if you want, we'll forgive you. And you get a calling. We are a kingdom of priests. We are kings and we are priests. Do you know in the first century world, the only group that had female priests, they called them priests, was where they practiced block children, temple prostitution. And in the pagan idolatrous temples of Ephesus and Corinth and a few other places in Asia Minor, right where John's writing these letters, the priests were in the Roman imperial cult. The priestesses were in the temple of Artemis or the other weird religions in Corinth. And the girl's job was to come there and be a priestess. And so what she would do is the men would come and they would give an offering to the temple and they would worship the God by having sex with the priestess. And if you lived in Ephesus... Every Roman family, by the time their daughter was 12, must have sent her for one or two years service in the temple. That is called human trafficking, by the way. 
and the gospel comes and says, why would we allow things that do not exist to ravage humanity with demonic powers when you are a king yourself and you are a priest yourself? I want you to stand on your feet all over this room. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, look, he's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatera, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. By the way, Jesus' favourite title for himself in the Gospels was the son of man. And this is why. It's a prophecy from Daniel that one like a son of man would come and share God's throne and rule over the nations. When Jesus taught on planet earth, he said, I am that son of man. And then John says, I was transported to heaven and I saw the churches as seven golden lampstands. And Jesus, the son of man, walked among those golden lampstands. Unmasking reality. See, today we see brothers and sisters sitting in rows in a church building, but from the heavenly perspective, we're just a lampstand today and Jesus walks among us in our midst, friends. We've got to learn to see there's so much more important in what we're doing here. There's so much more important in our gathering place. There's so much more important in our witness and our testimony because we are a lampstand and King Jesus is among us this morning. God, help me let my worship be the type of worship that says I'm part of the lampstand and Jesus is right here with me walking around. He's witnessing my prayer. He's witnessing my worship. He's expecting my worship as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he says, it's like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. That's the the dress of the high priest on the day of atonement. So John is saying, I saw this son of man. Who was he? He is the high priest of our faith. The author to the Hebrew said, he is the great high priest that entered into the veil before us. What was he like? The hair on his head was white as wool. Remember the transfiguration? It was white as wool. And white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. It's an inspiring presence. It's an awe-inspiring presence. It's the presence of somebody who with the snap of his fingers can wind up history and bring everything to its historical conclusion, which will happen in the ends of this book. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. You hear the story? When we gather together as the lampstand and Jesus walks among us in our midst, we we are in his hand. Now the seven lampstands have turned into the picture of seven stars. Jesus holds us in the palm of his hand as the church. And what came out of his mouth? A double-edged sword. It's the important thing that whenever God's word is declared in a Christian church is it's not words that come from our mouth. It's a double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of the Jesus that walks among us. Well, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, 
I fell down at his feet as though I was dead. I think that's the appropriate response to majesty. I think that's the appropriate response to the full disclosure, not of gentle Jesus that walked as a Galilean carpenter, but the Lord of the universe and ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who has overcome Satan and sin and death, the one who is resurrected, the one who is Daniel prophesied and said, he will shine like the stars in the universe and be seated at the right hand of God and every nation will worship him. And John says, and I fell down dead even though I followed him all my life. This is what I love about God. And then he placed his right hand on me. He said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. In the the Greek, it's the alpha and the omega. The letter A and the letter Z, man. The beginning and the end. I start everything and I'm the finish of everything. If you think you're an alpha, have you met the alpha? I am the first and last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I am living forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write what you've seen. What is now will take place and what later? The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You'll see sevens all the way through the book of Revelation. It's simply symbolic language meaning completion. So the seven churches means the full complement of churches. That means every church that is ever going to be. And you know who you are today? You're in the hand of Jesus. You're one of the lampstands, church. One of the places that Jesus walks and nourishes and manages and superintends. Why? So that the lamp in your stand may shine out bright and be a light to the world in Jesus' name. And how do we do it? Well, we don't do it in our own strength because he walks among us. He walks among us. I hate people who beat up the church. Sorry, I don't hate them. I hate that people beat up the church because they don't see reality unmasked that that is Jesus' lampstand and he's there trimming and oiling and nurturing and shining and polishing and rebuking and cleansing and changing. And he's in our midst this morning. When Revelation was first circulated for the first 200 years of the church, they didn't argue about its contents. They learned the songs in every throne room scene and they sung. They sung worship songs. And then a new tradition emerged of Christians writing songs and Christian composing hymns and and Christians taking psalms and putting them to music or writing their own songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. All sorts of things have come over Christian history of writing. And here's where the Christian singing tradition comes. Are you ready for it? Because when reality is unmasked, the substance behind the realities of the universe is the thousands upon thousands worshipping around the throne. Listen, every time the church does it, we are in sync with heaven. We are in sync with heaven. That's why this is not what will happen in the future according to John. This is it's happening now. The time is now. Things must soon take place. The worship in heaven is going on now. And when we worship, whether you do it at home, whether you do it in your car, in your bed, when we do it together as a church, we are joining with heavenly reality. The reality behind the substance of the universe. In a world that says Caesar is Lord, the world needs to know, actually, Jesus is Lord. So I've asked the band as we finish today to lead us in one last song. And this song is not so that we can resituate ourselves to get to the head of the coffee queue. It is not to resituate ourselves to get ahead of the child reclamation queue from kids' church. 
It is not to situate yourselves to be the first car out of the car park and thus avoid the congestion out there. It is for us to do what the only appropriate response to the book of Revelation is. Understand that in Revelation, Jesus is being revealed and to say, God, God, I haven't fully heard the words of this prophecy and I can never know the blessing if I don't take to heart its contents. So what must I do? I must worship. I must worship. I must worship. And I'm going to ask you, church, in Jesus' name, to follow your King this morning and to fill this place with passion, praise and worship, an expression of allegiance and love to our King Jesus.